This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's damaging, I think, for young people especially, to look at celebrities for the answer, for the fame, for the money, for the followers, for the big house, and realise when they get there, if they do get there, that it was all a sham. Turn off your phone. Stop listening to this. You're addicted. You're addicted to this thing. Maybe it's all right. Maybe it's okay. I'm addicted to it too. I'm sort of hoping this is an intermediate phase where it feels like we're addicted to screens and maybe in the future we'll be in the screens and it will all feel a bit more natural. Well, natural is not the right word for that abomination I just described, which I suppose is the metaverse. It's Emma Gannon. She's on today. She's a famous writer. She's actually younger than me by two months, according to Wikipedia, and has already written a whole bunch of books. She's probably best known for her book, The Multi-Hyphen Life, about working less and creating more. And her podcast, Control-Alt-Delete, where she looks at technology, internet and philosophy. So do check that out. Big names on there, including Alain de Bodon, although he's English, so it's just Alan de Botton, uh, and to Fern Cotton, that's another one. English people that Americans or, or other non-English people might not know of, but they're great. Her latest book, Disconnected, was a great read for me. I was on a long plane journey from London to Buenos Aires to see my girlfriend's family, and we're talking like 20 hours. So I just got to sit there and, I suppose, disconnect uh, from anything else And just, I loved page after page, really, really insightful look at how to stay human in a disconnected world. It's really good. Do look it up and enjoy listening to her now. That's what you're here for. I mean, that's what a podcast is. She's great and we get on brilliantly. Coming up on the podcast in the next couple of weeks are GB News journalist Calvin Robinson. He's quite controversial. Molly Bloom from Molly's Game. Fantastic. She was so good. Really good fun. Uh, All the poker and the celebrities and all that stuff she was doing. And Adam Levin on, not Adam Levine from Maroon 5, Adam Levin on cyber wars and cyber security. But now, disconnect from everything else. You're on the edge with Emma Gannon. So tell me about, wait, I read your book, wait, so your book, Disconnected, and I told you, because I don't always get to the end of these books, because I'm now doing two a week, and I just finished that in like one plane journey, because I enjoyed it so much. Can you tell me a little bit, we well, don't need to tell me because I've already read it, but tell the listeners about the book. Thank you. Yeah, it's a shorter book, which I'm happy with, and I also think it is quite apt for the subject matter of the book, that, you know, our attention spans aren't what they were. And so the fact that you can get through it very quickly was uh, a name for the book. But essentially, I just felt very disconnected. I felt very disconnected in my relationships with my sort of online self, my real self, my work, my life, everything. And I felt really disconnected from myself, which 
was sort of the main point of writing the book is, okay, fine, we know that our screen time has gone up by a bazillion percent. We know that we now live on Zoom through the pandemic. We know that our WhatsApp misunderstandings are causing problems in our friendships. Like all the data is there, like even having our phone on the table when we're having dinner with our partner can stop us connecting, all that. But I just felt like, well, okay, we know all of that. We watch The Social Dilemma and all of those documentaries. What do we actually do with that information? And how do we connect with ourselves more? And essentially, how do we access the wisdom I feel that we have inside of us and not the wisdom of the phone that's in our back pocket that we rely on for everything? I remember about four or five years ago, um, I said to a couple of friends, like, if you can, if we can just, like, the first person who gets their phone out has to pay for dinner. Uh, like, because nobody gets their phone out, that kind of thing. And, and you know, we were at that point, you know, I guess it was five, six years ago, mid-twenties, no one wants to pay for dinner. Um, and they all agreed to it. And, like, literally about five minutes later, one of the guys got his phone out. And I just said, like, hey, the thing. And he he went, yeah, I don't, I don't care about that. I'm not paying for dinner. So what do you do when somebody you know has their just their phone on the table? Because that's actually quite uh, almost passive-aggressive, isn't it, the phone on the table? Yes, it is. And interestingly, I've done a few events now because I've been able to, you know, get back out in the world, thankfully, as we all have a little bit in our own way. And someone at the in the audience and this has happened a few times now so I noticed the pattern they were like it's not my friends it's my parents and there's this generational divide apparently where the older generation now are the ruder ones like they're the ones that you would think would tell off the younger generation but no it's flipped and so I think yeah it is a bit awkward because it's a bit of a social etiquette no-no but at the same time we're all sort of guilty of it and I was very aware writing this book that yes I'm coming at it from someone that's trying to be better in quotes but we're all struggling with this like we're all addicted and some people don't want to use the word addicted because of the connotations with you know the fact that it's not a very nice thing but we are if we're reaching for it first thing in the morning if I reach for a packet of cigarettes at 6am in the morning I would say I'm addicted so I think we kind of have to like look at it for what it is, which I'm very happy to do. I've said in the book, I'm I'm addicted to my phone. Let's talk about this. Does it go as far as, because with addiction, you think of physical withdrawal um, symptoms, don't you? So does it go as far as that if you get your phone taken away for a few days? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been calling this a sort of not a digital detox book. And some of the reviews are like, I'm not learning how to do a detox. I'm like, that's not what the book is about. The book is about how we accept this is a massive part of our lives, accept that the fact that this is actually going to get worse in terms of our screen time. We, we are living in a digital world. There is a very slim percentage of people that can actually survive without their phone now. It's almost like the new elite, you know, people who are like, oh, I don't need my phone. It's like, well, a lot of people do for to make money, to run a family, to run a household. When you see a stressed out single mother on the tube on their phone, they're probably not on Candy Crush. They're probably organising doctor's appointments and doing the weekly shop or whatever. It's so integrated. So I think what I just want to get to the heart of is, okay, so statistically, you know, people are saying that a digital detox is impossible for people and actually makes us more anxious. So how do we live with it without it being good or bad and just put a few things into our day that are actually very simple and very basic so that we can sit with ourselves without it? Like, I, I, I think I write in the book that we, you know, we, we eat three meals a day. So maybe we should have three times in the day where we are just without our phone for a bit. Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? That guy, um, that journalist, um, is it Johan, Johan Hari? He just did a detox thing, didn't he? Yes, I think his book is about attention spans. 
And it's funny, I wrote this book very, very quickly and I wrote it in the middle of the pandemic. And I'm noticing now that there are similar books out. And I really like that. I like that when you feel like, oh, okay, this is a cultural conversation now. And it's, I think, and this is just me, kind of my perspective on publishing, but I think publishing a book is a very different thing now. I don't think it's like a knowledge-based asset that can only exist in the book form. You know, we have YouTube, we have um, lots of different verified sources of information now. Anyone can look up anything. My book isn't probably telling you loads of new things that you don't already know, but it's more a conversation starter. And that's what I love about books now is you can go on podcasts and chat about it. It doesn't end with the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I guess I guess also having a book out sort of gives it a bit of credence and a bit of weight to because you can just pop something up on YouTube in a minute, whereas a book is usually with a publishing house. You need people looking over it. It takes years to get out, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's quite a long process but with non-fiction I mean this one happened really quickly so I was pleased about that that's good I got my I got my first book sort of um accepted or whatever and just recently very excited amazing oh my god congrats that's awesome thank you yeah really excited uh, although that thing is like you you want it for so long and you're like pushing and pushing and then you get it and you're like oh I've got to actually write it now oh no so that's where I am right now like it's really stressful but they were like um okay so that'll be out in 2024 and I was like what 2024 it's two years how can that be so that's what I thought like I guess once you've been doing it longer they don't they don't need as much time I don't know maybe but I think with this one I needed it to come out quite quickly I think if you're going to write about the internet I mean, who knows what will change by 2024? I don't know if yours is sorry, about digital culture or something like that. I'm sure you can be broad enough for it to encompass talking about big, big topics. But I don't know. I, I'm happy with, um, with, with being able to get it out quite quickly. And the fact that it's shorter really helped with that. I loved it. It was a really, really good book. Really interesting, fun and uh, well-researched. Um, why do you think, going back to what you said earlier, why do you think the older generation are a little slow? Is it that they're a little slower to adapt to the new societal... It's like they get the, the gadget, but they don't necessarily know the societal rules that have been developing among the younger people. I mean, I don't know the full ins and outs, but I did read a statistic a while ago that really intrigued me that apparently baby boomers are like 60% of the whole sort of amount of people that are buying all the new tech so they're six percent of baby boomers are the ones getting the new iphone even though their iphone is perfectly fine and they just want the upgrade and they can tell their friends and they want the latest stuff that generation and i know that my parents are always talking about their new sonos system or whatever they've got and i mean maybe a lot of us are like that now in a consumer culture obviously but i find it interesting that they're like really into it whereas I don't know. I when I look at my nieces and nephews, they're just not as glued to it. They can actually leave their phone in in indoors and go and play with their friends for a bit, or go and kick a football around. They're not as addicted, and I think that might be because it's sort of normal, common sort of knowledge to them that they can go on it whenever they want. Whereas I feel like baby boomers feel like it might get taken away, or they're still having like a midnight feast on it of just not knowing when to stop. Like it's really exciting. I suppose also if you reach a certain age, you can't just go and play football or something in the garden. So maybe that that's all you're left with. My dad won't thank <laughs> me for saying it, but like, I definitely find the, the conventions around these things, they seem to develop. So, I mean, you mentioned in the book how Facebook, like 10 years ago, it was really embarrassing if you look back because we were all like chatting to each other publicly in this weird way. Whereas, you know, my dad, my stepmom, they will definitely do that. And they'll air their dirty laundry as well. If there's arguments, that'll all be going on online. Whereas no one my age would ever do that stuff. We don't even use Facebook. We've like moved on to like five things time 
So, and my dad always got, he's always got the TV on. That winds me up if we're having dinner. It's funny how that swaps because when you're a yes. kid, you know, you're being told like sit down for dinner, and then they start just having the TV on all the time. And I'm like, I'm I'm over here for dinner. Turn the TV off. Yes, my dad was actually he took a phone call recently during a dinner that I'd made, and I, my mum looked at me as if to say, I, I'm going to tell him in a minute. And it was like just that f- moment of if this had happened years ago and I was on the phone during dinner like I, but yeah so the, the tables do turn but it's interesting with Facebook because there was a real heyday with Facebook and some of the other more retro ones like Bebo and Friendster and stuff I think it was 2010 or maybe earlier that there was a real boom and there was loads of studies that came out saying that the internet is making us so much happier it's reconnecting us with old friends like people are you know finding old family members and you know looking at their family tree and kids were doing really well at school and you know we were campaigning and connecting and things were changing and it was like a real positive time and I feel like you know now 10 or 12 years on there's just a darkness to the internet that I feel a lot of us feel sad about because that nostalgia's kind of gone and it's just we're scared to go online and we're scared to say anything. I mean, talking about Facebook and all that stuff we used to say on the public wall, some of it, because I get memories, you know, I actually quite like knowing what I was doing five years ago in terms of photos. But when I look at what I've said five years ago, I'm horrified, actually. Thankfully, none of it is, you know, completely awful. I don't think I'm trying to, like, put hate speech on the internet or anything. <laughs> but it's just very tone deaf and I think we're now aware that that stuff lives on and maybe we are more careful now. It's funny. It's a little bit like when you read um, old essays you wrote at school. You know, when you were 17, you read something when that when you were 16 and 16 when you were 15 and so on. You're like, how did I write like that? It was awful. And then you don't know how you're going to... What Right now, what stupid, what stupid things am I saying right now in this second that in like five years' time, I'll be like yeah. listening back like, what did I say to Emma? What a weird thing to have said. <laughs> it's oh. true. It is true, but I don't want to censor myself like that. I think it's a really <laughs> sad way to live. But I, I'm trying to really make peace with the fact that we all change, we all grow, we all make mistakes. And um, I think we need a bit more of that just in society at the moment. Yeah, I feel that way. I said in a podcast last week, I had this person on, um, Debbie Hayton, who's a trans person who has some views, I don't know. And I said, like, you know, I'd love to be a woman for the day. And you say things like that just because I, f- I just felt that in that moment. Well, imagine being a woman for the day. Wouldn't that be just to try it out? I don't know, something different. And then you look back and when it's the edit and my girlfriend's going, what have you just said? And I'm like, oh, maybe put it out anyway. Oh, you don't know how it's going to bite you. Well, it's true. And out of context, with no context, that's not a bad thing to say. I think context is really key. <laughs> yeah, it could seem to trivialise um the sort of very real needs of of people who want to transition or something and i'm just like i'd love it if i could switch a button like click a button whatever push a button and just be a woman for the day i'd love that it would be great and yeah it's a bit might be trivializing well if you're talking in the context of maybe talking about trans issues perhaps but i would say i would quite like a day of knowing what it's like being a man so yeah if you could push a button would you do that yeah, but I'd want to change back at a certain time for sure. <laughs> yeah. How long would you spend as a man if you could? God, I didn't know the podcast would go here. Um, it wouldn't. It doesn't you. <laughs> I, would, I would do a full day. I'd do like 24 hours, I think. Two days too long, maybe. Yeah. You've got to. You've got, you've got to experience everything you, you can in your life, right? You've got any different things. Speaking of that Facebook stuff about the memories, I always don't you find that funny that... I w- they don't seem to have thought about that what's going to happen a lot is that 
people's ex-partners like little memories of them with their ex-partners are going to be popping up all the time and like they'll be watch they'll be on the phone with their girlfriend now next to them and that's going to pop up all the time i mean that's the bit that seems to be a bit of a problem with that yeah i wouldn't mind that as much just because i don't think you can sort of erase your past and I mean, it depends if it's going to trigger you in some way. I don't think I would want flashbacks of things that happened if there was like a really bad year that I had or something. I think I've been relatively unscathed. But I really like reminding myself of my own growth, I think. I think it's, um, for me, it's not, oh my God, cringe, look at you in in 2011. It's like, oh my God, you're such a better person now. Or at least I like to think so. Even with my old books, you know, I wrote my first book when I was 26 I don't think that book's very good. Um, But I'm okay with that because I'm improving. And I think that's really what life is about. And I find it really strange that we're meant to exist in this like permanent state at all times where we were like came out of the womb and we were meant to be fully formed, like really intelligent people who were switched on. Like we all make complete screw ups of our lives sometimes. And I just find it strange that we don't accept that as not the norm. Yeah, that we can change and progress and change our I thought that is the problem though with leaving our mark on the internet and stuff. And then, you know, you and I both have these podcasts. And like I say, I'm gonna say mad stupid things sometimes and that years later embarrassing. how what do we do about that? Because we've got to do you, do, you know I, do you do you get people having a go at you for things you've said a couple of years ago and you're like, I don't remember saying that? No, I but <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't because when I was first starting out in journalism, when I was in my early 20s, it was the age of the personal essay. It was the age of the think piece that would really grind people's gears. And it was like headlines were everything. And my editor would change the headline and make it sound way worse than what I'd written. And that was how we grew our careers as like 20 something women. It's like put your heart and soul on a plate and get people to click it for money like it was very odd and the magazine world is obviously not what it was for that reason but there's loads of stuff floating around the internet I think I wrote an article about how like are women funny I think the headline was and obviously the the piece wasn't really saying anything too controversial but it was like my name's attached to that statement you know that's strange but that was over 10 years ago and I don't know. I just find it, I would find it really weird if someone dug that out and tried to have a go at me because I just, I think that shows lack of growth on their part. Yeah, I agree. Was that referencing the Christopher Hitchens thing? Because he said that, didn't he? No, I, no I'm not sure. I think, I, I think you know, it was just something that we were talking about in the office about the differences between comedians. Um, but yeah, I put a lot of stuff out there and a lot of people my age, like millennial women would say the same. They're like, oh God, I wrote all sorts of things. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist 
Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. I've heard a lot about like the screen age, that we're in the screen age. And it's like a temporary period where we're like looking at things, you know, on your phone. And there'll be a moment where we'll look back at that like it seems really primitive. Do you know much about that? Have you thought about the future of how things are going to be? Not really. I think I'm quite into trends when I'm thinking a sort of year ahead, two years ahead. Very intrigued about sort of how things become very, very popular very quickly and then not very popular. And something that is very popular and moves the culture forward is then shamed for being very outdated. And we saw that a lot with kind of business books, especially around women in business and things like that. I don't really look too much into the future ahead of that. I think I think I think it's sort of a waste of time because there's so many things that come out and people talk about it. But I used to work in kind of trend reporting and all that stuff in agencies back in the day around brands and things and like self-driving cars was on the futuristic, you know, um, PowerPoint for like seven years and it's still not here. So I think people like to kind of get really excited about the future and it never really arrives and then things come out of the blue and suddenly something's just taking over. So I find that really interesting. Um, and I think the metaverse stuff is a bit weird. I thought the Mark Zuckerberg presentation that was online, I don't know if you watched it, where he it was very staged and very weird. And it wasn't actually the content that freaked me out. It was like the tone of that company and how it was like an episode of Black Mirror. And we didn't really know what was real and what wasn't. And are we really going to step into like a 3D meta universe and be in like Habbo Hotel again? Really? Um, I find it all fascinating, but I don't I don't really have a clue. <laughs> yeah, he shouldn't act in his own adverts, really. He's very strange, isn't he? He is. He is very, very strange. But I've got to say, one of my favourite films is The Social Network. Right, that is good. But he, he, exactly, and he didn't act in it. 
that's the brilliance of it. <laughs> no, exactly. Jesse Eisenberg, is that who yes. plays him? Yeah, um, so yeah, I like the fictionalised version of it all, but when it's reality, it's terrifying. Yeah. Well, oh man, that sort of robot-y, lizard-y uh, advert that he did was really weird. They're always so happy as well. They're a bit Brave New World. They're all sort of on the Soma drug. They're all sort of smiling and happy. Come and be in our nice. And it's like, have you not seen any movies Cause like about the apocalypse and stuff? Because we have, and that's what it looks like. Maybe, maybe it'll be nice and good what they do. Uh, I just wish it didn't look like you say so black mirrory. Yeah, I don't know if you watched that film, The Circle, as well, based on the Dave Eggers novel. I did. It's Tom Hanks, wasn't it? I didn't watch it. I didn't see it. It's 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 the book's really good. I didn't love the film, but I found that we're in this weird time where we're watching this kind of dystopian, fictionalized thing, which is actually very very close to what we're going through, and I think that's so jarring, especially with um, Don't Look Up and films like that. We're sort of laughing at you know. What, what a mess the world is but actually it's it's kind of really hits home and you kind of stop laughing immediately oh my god i didn't watch that one either because again it just annoyed me i'm starting to become i'm becoming very grouchy and i find um movie stars i'm, I'm in a grouchy mood about them and that might change next year but just seeing all the faces all the dicaprio and this guy and that guy and i just thought i don't want to i don't find i don't want to know what you're doing that's very interesting we are, I think we're going through the fall of the celebrity, for sure. Oh, tell me about that, because I've just written about that in my latest newsletter. Really? I have to check that out. I think that we are just falling out of love with the concept of a celebrity. I, th- I think they played a role for a long time in culture and society, and we could ref- they could reflect us back to us. And if someone was going through a divorce, it would give us space to talk about our own divorce and like things like that. We could kind of link our lives up to celebrities playing them out in the public eye. But I don't know if it's the pandemic and whether we've seen too many like bushy beards on famous men and they're not as glamorous, they're not as shiny. Some of them made really bad taste jokes. The weird video that they did about um, singing Imagine, trying to raise money. It's just, there's one too many of those. That was like a real moment, that was. And it's not, I feel really bad for Gal Gadot because it could have been anyone that was the next person to do it. And even last week, I was getting annoyed by Sean Penn because he was talking about if Zelensky's not at the Oscars, he's going to chuck his Oscars away. And it's like, Zelensky's fighting a war, mate. He doesn't care about you and your stupid club of like overpaid elite whatevers. They they overestimate their own importance, I think. I know a lot of people still watch it, but the Oscars, I think it was the second uh, lowest ratings this year ever. Last year was the worst ever. I think it only, it only spiked this year because of Will Smith. And that Will Smith moment felt like a pivotal turning point because it was almost like the frustration of the whole of the celebrity world was in that slap of like, why isn't anyone watching us as much, you know? Yeah, that's really, really true. And it does feel jarring when you have the whole of Twitter weighing up what they think about a slap when there are bigger things going on. And I know it's not about, you know, the what aboutery all the time of like, what about this? What about that? We're allowed to have a moment of kind of gossip or whatever, but it just felt really weird that suddenly everyone cared so much about something so insignificant, really. But yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we're, we're, we're going through a time as well where there are so many more micro celebrities. There's sort of the girl next door that can have a million followers and what does that mean and is it more accessible is it less of a hollywood glamour um 
yeah, I find it actually really fascinating that that's all changing. But I also find it a smoke and mirrors and, and full of myths because celebrities are not happier than us, I don't believe. I think a lot of them are really, really miserable and depressed. And I've spoken to a lot of psychologists who have worked with celebrities and they're like, yeah, it's it's a facade. And, we, and it's damaging, I think, for young people especially to look at celebrities for the answer, for the fame, for the money, for the followers, for the big house and realise when they get there, if they do get there, that it was all a sham. And I think it stops people from enjoying their lives, actually, who have quote-unquote normal lives. Yeah, I felt that with my little sister, because she's 14 now, um, half-sister. And when she was like 10, she was like being encouraged to watch all these Britain's Got Talent things. And it was like, you're going to be up on that stage. And, and it almost, I, I said to her, I tried to, whenever I could, I'd be like, you know, that's that doesn't make them happy. I mean, I didn't want to be too morose when she was 10, but, you know, look at Amy Winehouse and that kind of thing. They're not happier. And, and yeah, you're right. I think it, it really is damaging. The nice thing about the micro celebrity, as you say, is like um, if they're annoying you, it's very easy to turn them off and you just unsubscribe and that's that's it. You never probably hear from them again. Uh, whereas like you probably haven't watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That was 20 years ago and you're still hearing about a slap that he did a few days ago. It's true. I wonder as well if people are more accepting though of those traditional celebrities because they're like, oh, okay, they worked really hard to get where they did or whatever that means. They've been in loads of films, they've been in the public eye, they've almost earned a right to be famous or whatever, just because that's the way we see it when we're young, especially. And now when you have someone who looks like you, sounds like you, maybe isn't even that much more talented than you, and they're famous and they're getting all (laughs) these things and they're the Instagram influencer in the Maldives and you're not... I think that really makes people bitter and and angry. And I find that fascinating because it is it is luck, really. If you're going to be like the, I don't know, you know, the mummy influencer circle, those women, I'm not saying they haven't worked hard. I'm not saying they're not talented. I'm not saying that they don't earn what they earn for a reason. But that could be any group of women. It's just it could it's just the women that might have got there at the time where Instagram was taking off. And I and you know, I can understand why people feel a bit cheated by that. I get that. They do work tremendously hard, those people. I, w- I would say that they're also, I mean, there's an argument that they're, the, particularly the family ones are quite exploitative. I mean, there's there's a lot of, uh, uh, I don't think there's a consensus yet over it, whether that's okay for children to grow up in that kind of environment where they're, they're essentially working for the family. Yes, no, it's true. And absolutely, it's not ne- not to negate anyone. I mean, I can put myself into that category of people going, oh, well, I, I, you know, I, I could do a podcast and it's like, yeah, you could. And, and that's why people weigh, that's why people weigh up kind of um, why people have got what they have. I think we do that much more now. I don't think we sit around going, how did Will Smith get famous? But I think we sit around going, why do the Kim Kard- why do the Kardashians have what they have? And I don't. The irony is, though, that, well, the Kardashians aside, because they're so huge, but the irony, I think, is that it is actually, in a sense, more democratic today. It is just, there's the internet and you need some luck and you need the algorithm to work for you and you need to get in there early maybe. But if you do the hard work and people want to watch you, then you get to the top. Whereas, I don't know about Will Smith, of course, but a lot of these people, I mean, uh, Casey Affleck is an example, right? I mean, how did Casey Affleck become a huge movie star? We all know. How did um, Charlie Sheen, you know, all these people, I, I, and I don't I don't begrudge them, you know, the nepotism. We, we would all like to help our own children and families and stuff out, but I'd still see the micro-influencers as, as more sort of a little bit more democratic. Yeah, for sure. And I really, I'm really with you on that because I do think that 
the playing field has been leveled a bit. I think content that people love rises to the top for sure. I don't think it's obviously equal enough with the people with how people can even get to that point of kind of getting noticed. Obviously, it's not completely like everyone starts at the same starting point. But I love that. And I love the fact that, you know, traditional outlets like the BBC or Netflix or whoever, they are looking for the next talent and they're looking for that next talent in a really democratic way, I hope. At least they're going to the internet to see what people are liking. And it is like, oh, the people have spoken. This is what people really like. And that's really cool. So yeah, it's an exciting time. I feel really lucky to be alive now in this time. Like we have a lot of things that we can do and the gatekeepers are going and I think that's great. Yeah, I hate those gatekeepers. I started to get really embarrassed at the beginning of the interview because I real I realised it wasn't for YouTube, and then I've got all this background going on, like I'm all like doled up for it, and then um, I thought you might be thinking, what's he got all this stuff for? Oh no, no, it's good. Got a good setup there. Oh well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's not always. I'm not always just sat here with like all this gear on. <laughs> well, I was thinking you'd be like, God, what a loser! She d- can't go on YouTube. So there we go. <laughs> No, not at all. I first started the YouTube channel and I went to like film something. It was like I was in Germany. It was like Corona. It was the first football game in Berlin without Corona or something, uh, without fans. And I went and asked some people like a bit of and some cameramen. I said, like, do you know where this or that is? And they said, what channel are you with? And I said, oh, it's just for my YouTube channel. And the looks they gave me and then one of them like told the other one, um, he's on a YouTube channel. And the guy said, no, don't don't bother with him. And I was so embarrassed. That's so funny. I don't have any judgment of YouTube for that reason. It's more, I love, it's very empowering, I feel, um, as a woman, to like do a podcast where it's just my voice. And I think that's why I love podcasts because I just feel like how amazing that you can kind of make a living without showing your face. Not that I don't like my face, I don't mind my face, but it's just really nice to just be able to, it just be your thoughts and your voice. It's such a, it's such a relief actually. When I start, when I first did my first podcast, I felt exactly what you're feeling and I guess it must be uh, amplified, as you say, I wouldn't have said it, but you said as a woman, uh, <laughs> do you, you must, you always feel like people are just looking at how you look, right? Yeah, they, it's really, it's a huge thing and I, I don't really know why and I don't know why people have to comment on anything really that you're wearing, but we see it all the time, even with um, like news presenters. There's all these kind of people being like, oh, I didn't like that she was wearing nail polish to read the news or <laughs> I didn't like that, um, whatever, um, oh, I've forgotten her name, but there's a really great news reader on TV and people are like, oh, she showed some of her legs while she was reading the news. Like People have such opinions still on this stuff and it just is crazy. The, the opinions are just opinion on everything. We do seem, do you think we're in a culture of like where nobody's allowed to say, you know what, I just don't have an opinion on that thing? Yes. I think we are. And I have, I wrote about that in Disconnected actually, that occasionally I give myself the day off from having an opinion. Because I think, you know, we do have a responsibility as citizens to have opinions and move society forward and, you know, not kind of cop out. I think that's sometimes like a very privileged standpoint to be where you just think, I don't need to because nothing affects me. Because actually, if you're someone who goes through society being, completely knocked down all the time for your the way you look or the way you sound or whatever you don't really have that luxury to be like oh I'm not going to have like any thoughts today about anything so I'm very aware that I maybe am in a situation where I can sort of opt out and that makes me really uncomfortable but I also think that for our mental health there is no point kind of putting yourself through you know constant suffering because you're not going to help society in that way either 
So I quite like having days where I don't know. And I really like how uncomfortable it makes people feel at a dinner party where you just say, oh, I don't know about that. I don't really have any opinions <laughs> on that. People are yeah. like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's a conversation stopper though, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah, it is. We're all, we're all just expected. We're expected to then sort of, okay, but here's my opinion. And it's okay when we try and find common ground, I suppose. Isn't it funny how I saw somebody shared something on Twitter. I think it was David Baddiel. He shared something that somebody who's long dead said like 200 years ago and it was something like why are people so attached to their ideas ideas are the easiest things to change um and that, that, i mean that speaks to today right yeah i mean actually, i actually just read something that was really interesting by arthur brooks who i really like he writes the atlantic and it was about how people people's opinions and beliefs are very very hard to change because they're so embedded in their identity and their sort of yeah, their beliefs, their value system. So if you have values, you're not going to change them and you're definitely not going to change them because someone on Twitter said you should. And I just find it really interesting that we think we can change people's mind by being really mean to them. Like we think we can argue with someone and get them to change their mind when actually research says that people double down on their beliefs if they feel attacked. And I and people are just attacking each other all the time on Twitter. But do you remember me and you had that years ago I think it was now we had a little bit of a like we disagreed with each other on something and then you came into my dms being like haha we we might be the first people in history to have like (laughs) accepted each other's differences and I love that about you I was like who is this person I just I really like that I like curiosity I like openness I mean it helps that we weren't talking about something like really heated I think we just had a disagreement but why can't we have more of that I think it was about was it about cancel culture or something I literally can't remember what it was now which which is probably why it's so insignificant but I think it was an example of how like similar most people's ideas really are I think and it's it's that thing of the Monty Python um what was it the oh what do they call it the something of Judea oh the people's Hang on, I'm going to quickly look that up. Monty Python, Life of Brian, the People's People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Fronts. So they hated each other. And it's just like the slightly different thing in the name. These were two political parties, uh, People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front. And that, again, that was 50 years ago. And it's just showing how it's. we want to argue with people who have very, very similar ideas to us, but slightly one thing different. And that's what's going on, I guess, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I do think it's a Twitter thing as well. It's it's obviously not the fact that we, you know, we disagree and we sometimes kind of come to this stumbling block of just feeling like we're really disconnecting. But it's I think it's Twitter's um, algorithm and, and format and character limit. There's something really eerie about how that's been designed. It's been designed to keep us on there and to keep us fighting and nothing gets resolved on there. So I've kind of made a bit of a vow to myself that I won't have Twitter fights because I'm up for the fights. I just don't want to do it on Twitter because it's pointless. Character limits are really hard for... I mean, it, we were already, as Monty Python and whoever else would say hundreds of years ago or decades ago, we were already a people who liked to argue about the tiniest differences. And then to reduce it to that character limit where there's now no nuance, no subtlety, there's, it's just blowing up at each other i guess there might be a lot of listeners to the podcast who aren't on twitter and would you say that they're they're probably happier probably i mean i think it's a definitely it's a certain type of person that's on twitter i think a lot of my friends have never gone near it i don't know if it's someone i know a writer or comedians who test out their lines or people who are very very into kind of culture or news or whatever but i don't i'm literally the only person in my friendship group that has a twitter account 
And I think I'm connecting with like-minded people on Twitter, which I like, but I think it's maybe a slightly neurotic type of person that wants to be on there. Check what's going on all the time in the world. <laughs> make sure we're up yeah. to date with everything. I guess journalists and stuff like we saw. Part of me wants to get rid of it. And I, I had a little daydream before. I thought if my YouTube channel were to get big enough and I could just do that, I wouldn't need Twitter anymore. And then I thought, well, I would because I get so many guests through Twitter. I wouldn't have spoken to you. I wouldn't have met you. There are so many people I wouldn't know about. So it does keep you, that's the positive side of it. And now Elon Musk's involved. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts on, on that? I have. I don't know much about what's going to happen. No, don't have any thoughts on that. Actually only read that yes, yesterday. So I'm still processing that. Don't really know what I think about that. But it's interesting what you just said about getting to know people because I got my first job through Twitter when I was like 21. I mean, the whole of me, the media industry is on Twitter. So it was like a backdoor entry into that i remember getting a coffee with um emma barnett actually who's now the presenter of women's hour and she replied to me i was just 21 working in an office and i'd said can i go for a coffee went for a coffee and she let me do some kind of little digital roundups for the telegraph where i would just link viral memes or something it was very weird um but i got to say i wrote for the telegraph for a bit because of that and that all happened through Twitter. We had no connection with each other. She had no idea who I was. It wasn't a friend of a friend of a friend thing. It was literally DMing someone on Twitter, and I love that. That's so cool. I like that origin story. Emma Emma Barnett's fantastic. I really like her. Um, I had, I had yeah, I had a, a similar. I mean, a similar thing. I was I was trying to make these documentaries for TV, and it was just coming up against these gatekeepers time and time again. And again, Twitter is where I got the podcast going, and then. Uh, then the podcast itself is another means to just like getting something out there and without that I don't know where I'd be right now like it, it would be impossible so there's so many I guess I, and I'd like to say it to the listeners as well there's so much stuff. if you wanted to get into that kind of world would you advise people now if they want to get into journalism actually would you advise them like alright maybe don't bother with all that you know, uh, doing a three week internship at the Watford Observer and then going there you know and maybe do it yourself or is that just quite hard well I think if you want to be a journalist, I think that's different. And I wouldn't say I'm a journalist. I mean, I worked in magazines for a bit. I don't think that's really the same. I'm a writer. I've always been a writer and I'm a writer in different ways. But to be a journalist, I actually would say you need to have that like feet on the ground thing or at least meet someone who really knows what they're doing and learn from someone else. I think journalism is a craft that actually I never had and never learned about. And that's not to say you need to get a really traditional degree, but I think you need to really know what being a journalist is about so that there's like you know ethics and different codes and different ways of working different ways of validating and verifying and being making yourself a safe space for interviewees and things like that but I think to be a content creator and a writer I mean god yeah do it yourself absolutely don't wait for anyone to tell you or give you permission because you're just going to be waiting forever. And it is still nepotistic and it is still friends of friends who get the jobs when actually if you can just put your stuff on the internet, then you can reach the people you want to reach. And I always think of it as sort of just really exciting. It's like little kind of droppings. I was going to say rabbit droppings, but that's not what I mean. (laughs) Like you kind of, um, you can kind of put things out there and then people just stumble across them and then magical things will happen. Like my husband put a short film on Vimeo about five years ago and someone's just got in touch with him inviting him to this amazing exhibition in America and they want to put it on as a as a feature and it's like 
why not then? Why not just put something out there? You never know. I suppose the downside is, is that we only ever hear of the sort of success stories and the positive sides. And I'm really fortunate I get to live from this now and you as well. And then your husband's story. So I guess it could give some false hope because I, I, I gather that there's a huge percentage of people who, who are just putting stuff out there and they're wasting just so much time. And maybe they would have been better off to go down the traditional route. I don't know, though, because I don't think time is wasted when you're making things you really like. The worst thing that might happen is that you have to also then go down the traditional route but then you've also got a load of side stuff that you've already done so two together is like a two-pronged attack and you've not lost anything if it doesn't work out try another route but I don't think I I would never ever look back on my blog for example I started in 2008 and if I was working now in a bookshop and wasn't doing what I'm doing I still would be like that blog was really fun and so I never really think of it as a means to an end sometimes I think of it as like well, I was reading something the other day about having process goals over milestone goals. Like, enjoy the process. Enjoy it a little bit because you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life. There's no time where you're like suddenly famous and successful and you don't have to do anything again. Like, this is sort of, we're in this for the long haul, I think. I think so as well, actually. It's, you know, my, my journalism experience in actual journalism. So my first day ever was at the Watford Observer. And um, they, I got in and like, I was, it was an internship. On a, I was working Fridays, one day a week there, and then, and then doing a like journalism course somewhere. Um, and they sort of forgot I was there. So I was just sitting there, like I had a little suit on and everything. And I was just sat there for like two hours just doing nothing and eventually I was like trying to go over to someone like hey should I do something or whatever and this guy was like okay oh you know what someone's just died in a car accident last night and we need you to go and check out because it's right on the border of Watford and Hemel Hempstead so we need you to go and check out if this guy had any like links to Watford and I was like uh okay so I get in my car and I'm driving down there I'm like 20 or something 21 and it suddenly hit me like oh god what I'm doing this is horrible I don't want to do this. And I had to get there because they wanted me to check through like the flowers on the side of the road that people had left as like a tribute to this this boy who was 18 who had died in a car crash the night before. So I got there and I like in my car and I called my stepmom because she's quite like a hard nosed journalist. Um, she's at the Jewish News. Um, so she's like been doing it for decades. And she was just and I said, like, I can't do I'm not getting out the car to talk to mourners on the side of a road to find out if this kid had a link to Watford. And she was like, you get out there now, you're doing it, get out the car. So I get out and it's like raining and I'm, I sort of sidled up to these people. And I, I had to be like, oh, so did you know him? Well, and I'm like, the words are coming out of my mouth. And I was like, what am I doing? And they were like, oh, yeah, how did you know him? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a journalist. Should I have said that already? I don't even know. Um, and they instantly, they didn't want, they just sort of, mm-hmm, and then walked away. And I felt like, dirt it was the worst thing ever anyway i went back to my car it was a whole big thing my stepmom said to me get out again for the next people i was like all right i'll go and do that and then again it was like this woman said to her kids who were there like do you want to talk to this man and they were like no and i was like okay i understand and i had to look at the cards on the side of the road like little cards just felt like scum and then i drove back went to these guys and i said to the guy like i was like almost in tears because it was just so emo i just so didn't want to be doing that and I said to the the guy, the manager or whatever, like, um, oh, you know, he, I don't, I think he went to school in Watford, but I don't, you know, this and that. And he said, who? And I was like, the kid who died last night. And he was like, oh, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We're doing something else. And I was just like, right, I don't know if I can do traditional journalism. That was my first ever day. Oh, my God. Well, when you put it like that as well, thank God you can make your own interview show 
and sort of you're still doing what you want to do in terms of uncovering stories right but you're doing it in a way that you want to and I think that's why I started my podcast because it's not anything like what you just experienced but I completely understand oh my god know what that's like but I would be sort of shoved into rooms with celebrities and having to find out if they're pregnant or not um so that was very weird um not that it's not like as detailed as that but my boss would be like you know yeah 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 ask them about the film but can you also you know ask them if they're and I was like I don't want to do this and when you're young in that industry you think well I've kind of got to earn my stripes and who am I to not do it and also I've got to earn money it's a very weird situation to be in so to be able to now interview people about things that aren't anything to do with that stuff is really great are you able to do uh hit pieces on people are you able to like write articles that are like this person's bad um or or do you worry like oh no then they won't like me because that's what I get yeah, I'm not interested in doing any of that. I had last night. I was interviewing on an, on some YouTube channel. Um, do you know um, Calvin Robinson? No. He's like very you know anti woke whatever guy, and he's also a devout Christian. And the whole time I was planning to like, okay, I've got to ask him about this because I think these are conflicting views. Like facts don't have feelings, but then he has this faith, and that's okay. But I just want to ask him, and I just couldn't do it because I just thought, oh, it's going to be a whole thing, and I don't want, I don't want that. And then people say like, oh, you need to, that's the thing with journalism. I, and I saw recently there was like a Ricky Gervais piece in the guard. Someone wrote about Ricky Gervais and they'd, they'd spent like an hour with him. And then they just wrote the most horrible things about him. And I thought how, I don't know how you can sit in a room with someone for an hour and then write, even if he is horrible. Yeah, God, I know. When you read them as well, you just think, oh, the person thought they were there for just a normal interview. And then, oh God. But I feel quite lucky in a way that I've been in this industry for a while now and I can sort of see it from all its angles and see it for what it is and almost like not get too attached to it. It just is what it is. And at the end of the day, people do strange things to make money. And it must be horrible if it happens to you. But I also think that it is kind of next day's chip wrappers, even though, of course, it lives on on the internet. But we kind of move on. I don't think things really stay in the public interest for like that long especially if it's like a celebrity thing so I don't know I just try and zoom out a little bit and like not really get all wrapped up in like the day-to-day gossipy stuff because if anything it just takes me away from my work it takes me away from what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to achieve and so um I think social media takes us away from ourselves which is kind of the point of my book like I think it takes our time it robs us of our time it gets us really caught up in the in things that don't matter it tries to get our attention all the time. The notifications are constantly trying to take away our attention from the things we want to do. And when people say, oh, I really wish I could sit down and write a book, like you're really now competing against your own willpower, but also all of the distractions in the world to get it done. And when we look at the pandemic, we're looking at like a lot of society who wants to change their job, change their life, go traveling, quit, quit whatever toxic thing they're in. People are really renegotiating what they want their lives to look like. And I think we have to look at the internet and how that plays a role in stopping us from achieving the things we want to achieve. So really, my book isn't really about self-helpy internet stuff. It's more a bigger book of what you want to do with your life. And maybe let's start with our internet habits as part of that. Yeah, it didn't feel self-helpy at all to me. It felt like a really good you know, analysis of where we're at and, and where we can go. Um it's isn't what you're saying about yeah writing the book I have these moments when I'm writing the book and then suddenly I go ah and I just turn off my phone and then like later I've got like you know seven missed calls from my dad or something and I'm like oh god they must have someone's died 
and then you call and like no one's died it's just like you had to call seven times just to say hello um also in your book you mentioned that people are like even checking their phones during sex is that true yeah that was an australian study which got a laugh when i did when i did a speech at the oxford (laughs) oxford university that i spoke about um and yeah it was just a bit of a weird one that i couldn't quite believe but then i was like no i can't believe that i think that's where we're at so you'd sort of be in a certain position and then sort of look get your face over (laughs) you'd have to touch the phone and turn it (laughs) I guess, would both people be doing it? <laughs> I have no idea. And beyond the statistic, I wasn't really sitting there imagining it, if I'm being honest. People should write in. I'm interested, actually. Is anyone is anyone doing that? I hope it's just a quick check. Like, if someone gets a notification, I hope it's not someone, like, fully having a good old scroll. <laughs> yeah. What? Tell us about where... So where can people get your book and where... in your podcast as well. And, and any, what else is going on? So, yeah, you can buy the book at all good bookstores... It's actually coming out in the US next month in May, so that's exciting. And I'm going out on a bit of a tour because I haven't left my house in two years, as a lot of people haven't. Um, no, I have. I just haven't <laughs> done any book events that aren't on Zoom. So that'll be really nice. And, you know, having slagged off Twitter for the last hour, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, <laughs> and I've actually got a newsletter called The Hyphen, which is my favourite place on the internet because people are really nice on there and they want to be there. And it's just really great people. And it's less about everyone getting involved and just a little community of nice people. So come and join me there if you're interested in anything I've had to say today. How often does the hyphen come out? That is a weekly thing on a Sunday. And you can also pay to receive extra stuff. And I love it. I think writers should be paid for their work. And so Substack, which is what my newsletter is on, has a model that basically allows writers to say what they want to say and get paid for it, which I think is great. I'm interested in this. So I, because I've just started my Substack, but it's free at the moment because I think my main goal is to sort of be able to link all the YouTube and the podcast people together and say, hey, you know, you could what you could listen in the morning and then come join me on the YouTube live thing later, all that kind of thing. And then all oh, the books coming out and all that stuff. But then people are also, as you say, you know, you can charge for like the bonus stuff there. So so how, what's your creative process? I'm just interested because in the week, are you thinking, right, I've got one coming out on Sunday. What am I going to write about? What kind of thing are, will you write? about and then what bit are you going to decide like okay that's for the bonus bit Mm. well I've only just started it so I'm sort of working all that out but the Sunday newsletter has always been for everyone and that goes to the main list and that's free and then the other stuff is more a community-based thought or prompt or theme and we all chat about it and it's really nice because I think newsletters can be very one way so it never felt like a community because it was just me publishing whereas it's a way for some of the subscribers to kind of talk to each other there'll be like zooms we can all chat there'll be book clubs so it's more of a digital kind of hangout I suppose more than just like commenting and and being there and reading so I'm really excited it's it's at its early stages so I don't I can't tell you my full content plan but I just know that it's so nice and it's so refreshing oh well Emma Gannon thanks for being on the edge thanks for having me Thanks, Emma Gannon, for coming. Guys, do look her up and get one of her many books. Disconnected was brilliant and filled with insights into switching off in this mad, mad world. She's great. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Tune in uh, in the coming days for Calvin Robinson, Molly Bloom, and 
Adam Levin on cybersecurity. Do please keep reviewing the podcast on Apple and CastBox and Podcast Addicts. I've not had so many recently, and I've got, maybe because I've stopped pushing about it, I don't know. And the amount of reviews uh, you have on your podcast is often an indicator of the size of the podcast. So it helps in attracting big name guests. So help me help you be able to hear the biggest names on here. I did get a complaining one about my and Sean Atwood's episode with Richard Dawkins on CastBox. I like this one from Sabina Stefanova. Did anyone prepare for the interview with Dawkins? Two question marks, crying, laughing face. Maybe read someone's book before they come on your show, or at least have someone feed you relevant information? Question mark, inquisitive, chin scratching face. I guess hats off to you guys for not caring, dot dot. Though I'm not sure what the point of such an interview is, apart from the obvious, having a high profile guest. Well, there you go. That that episode with Richard Dawkins, I'll just say, I did read his book. I literally, I literally speak about reading his book on the show. I told him about having read and really enjoyed it. I discussed the, the very particular syntax and way that he writes and all of that stuff um, is, is what we did. But if you try and please everyone all the time, you're just going to fail. And, you know, there you go. Otherwise, five stars in the UK on Apple from Joe and B just found this podcast and love it. They write... On, thank you very much for that. On Podcast Addict, meanwhile, Reg gave five stars and wrote, Your pivot towards being a song and dance man shows promise. I don't know what that's about, but that's because on Podcast Addict and Castbox, as opposed to Apple, you it often lets you comment on a particular episode, but I can't see what episode that is. So I don't remember. What, maybe someone will remember and get in touch. What was I doing a song and dance about? don't remember but everyone please do keep reviewing uh it's all good i don't think it helps with the rankings necessarily but it does help you sort of look like a bigger podcast and get uh bigger guests on i'm andrew gold and you've been on the edge judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.